The How Is This Movie podcast is supported by listeners just like you. Go to patreon.com slash howisthismovie. There you can pledge as little as a dollar a month and help us maintain the goal of keeping this show fully independent and free of advertising. You will also gain instant access to bonus episodes not available anywhere else. Once again, that's patreon.com slash howisthismovie. And now... For our featured presentation. Hello everyone and welcome to How Is This Movie? My name is Dana Buckler and thank you for taking just a little time out of your day to listen. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at How Is This Movie. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash howisthismovie. You can always email me with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave a review on whatever platform you use to listen. On this episode, I'm pleased to welcome back writer-director Jim Hemphill for an in-depth retrospective on the career of one of the great directors of our time, Oliver Stone. Now, just before we get started, I want to point out that we did do this recording via Skype. Now, I'm in Florida, Jim is in California, and from perhaps maybe the first 10 minutes of this episode, every once in a while in that 10-minute period, the audio gets a little bit garbled or a little bit of an audio hiccup. But I want to assure you that after 10 minutes, it completely clears up and there's not an issue throughout the rest of the episode. Okay, so let's talk to Jim. Jim, once again, welcome back to How Is This Movie. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Recently, we did a retrospective on Burt Reynolds. I recently uh, re-released our conversation about Wes Craven. Uh, Both of those episodes have received rave reviews, and I've titled the series Icons. In keeping with that trend, I'd like to talk about one one of the most, I think, prolific filmmakers of our generation, and that is Oliver Stone. So to get started, can you just talk a little bit about Oliver Stone, writer director you know what what type of influences he's had on you well it's it's gosh it's a big question and it's pretty pretty massive i mean i think there's really no one comparable to him even even a great director like scorsese for example you know who's great director but is not the uh the writer that oliver stone is i mean oliver stone is kind of you know i think i think a lot of writer directors you could say they're kind of stronger in one area than another. They're either, you know, uh, I mean, there, there are a lot of really great writer directors, but, you know, for example, Woody Allen, I think is somebody who, you, who I love, but who you could say is, you know, more, uh, distinctive as a screenwriter than as a director. I mean, he's a very good director, obviously, but in term, but, but Oliver Stone is somebody who's, you know, both a very literary screenwriter. He's written some of the greatest screenplays ever made. But he's also a huge innovator in terms of film form. I mean, I think that you can't, you really can't overstate how revolutionary JFK was when it came out or, or Natural Born Killers as, you know, major studio films. And that's another thing about Oliver Stone is I think that he's really just, he, he really figured out or he it was either a combination of luck or intelligence or ambition or a combination of all of the, of them. But Stone figured out how to harness the Hollywood studio system to incredibly personal and idiosyncratic and revolutionary. And I use that word both aesthetically and politically um, ends. I mean, I just think it's it's almost hard to even know where to start. I mean, I mean, for me, he's, you know, he's very specific influence in the sense of uh, the movie I directed trouble with the truth was, you know, one of the films I looked at when I made that movie was talk radio, which is, is a very different movie. It has virtually nothing in common with it content wise. Exactly. But when I made trouble with the truth, that's a film that's kind of in a confined space, it's limited locations, limited characters. And I kind of feel like 
talk radio is the masterpiece of that kind of filmmaking. Like if you want to see how do you keep an audience's interest in a film that essentially takes place in one room, uh, that is kind of the greatest example of it. And yet what's amazing is so, you know, Stone made one of the great intimate American films of all time with talk radio. And the movie he made right after it was born on the 4th of July, which is kind of one of the great sweeping epics. Uh, and that's, and that kind of gets it, I think, the heart of one of the things that makes Stone great and for which I don't think he actually gets enough credit. I mean, I've, I've said this before about him. He's, he's a weird director in that there are a few directors who are more famous and yet I still feel like he's kind of weirdly underrated. Um, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, people think of him as a political provocateur, all that kind of thing. And he is, but he's also one of the greatest filmmakers we've ever had in the kind of classical studio, you know, Michael Curtiz, Howard Hawks kind of way in terms of he's a guy who's tackled, so many different genres and and he, he doesn't make the same movie over and over again the way a lot of directors do i mean he really like if you if you think of how different wall street is from platoon and how different talk radio is from wall street not if one of the fourth of july is from talk radio and the doors is from that and, and that he would go from heaven and earth to natural born killers he would go from one of his most sort of contemplative spiritual films to this nihilistic uh you know, you know, provocation. I mean, he's just his his the diversity of his work, I think, is is pretty incredible. So that's another thing that I think stands out. But, uh, you know, we can get into the specifics of, of all these things. But he, I do. He's he's almost so varied in his talents and in the things he chooses to attack as a filmmaker that it's 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 really hard. Again, it's, it's hard to even know where to begin. Let's begin in the 1970s. Let's talk about sort of how he broke into the business, how he broke into the industry. He's got kind of a funny career because he directed this movie. You know, he went to, he went to NYU film school after he was in Vietnam. He came back from the war and went to NYU film school. Scorsese was one of his teachers, in fact. And there was a there was a sort of urban legend. I don't know. I've never really I don't know if this is really true. There was sort of an urban legend that that Stone was one of the sources for the Travis Bickle character in Taxi Driver, because Stone did in fact drive a cab and stuff. I think that's probably an apocryphal story. I don't. I don't know. But anyway, so we went to film school, and um, a few years out of film school, he made this this horror film called Seizure. That's I, I'm actually quite a fan of. It's a very strange, you know, kind of European art house influenced horror movie, and I don't know a whole lot about its production. Really, I don't really know how he got the funding and all that kind of thing. I think it's just kind of, you know, it was it was kind of a typical ragtag, low-budget independent film, and I don't think it did particularly well. Um, and as I understand it, he, you know, he was writing screenplays all throughout the 70s while he was driving a cab and all that kind of stuff. And as I understand it, he somehow got something he wrote. Maybe it was the Platoon script, because I know that was something he wrote that in the, in the 70s. It took him something like 12 years to actually get it made. But uh, I think the platoon script fell into the hands somehow of Robert Bolt, who was the screenwriter of, uh, gosh, um, I want to say he had a hand in Lawrence of Arabia. I know he wrote several movies for David Lean. And anyway, Bolt was, you know, uh, sort of championed Stone's writing and I think sent it around. And, and uh, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not real authoritative on how this all went down, but his huge break basically was he got the job writing Midnight Express, uh, the film that Alan Parker directed that came out in uh, 1978. 
which was based on a true story about an American who was imprisoned in a Turkish prison for uh, trying to smuggle drugs out of out of the country. And that getting that job was you know, as a writer for hire was Stone's big break, and it ended up really putting him on the map. It, I think it won him an Academy Award for best screenplay, uh, and it was actually where I first heard of him as a kid. I was kind of before I ever even saw it, I was obsessed with it. I don't know what it was, but for some reason that story really intrigued me. And I remember, you know, for a few years, you know, really desperately wanting to see it. And then finally did see it and became very obsessed with it. And anyway, so that came out in 1978, won him an Academy Award, made him a very hot, in-demand screenwriter. And like a lot of people in those days, Paul Schrader, Walter Hill, Lawrence Kasdan, uh, John Milius, you know, he basically leveraged his acclaim as a screenwriter into, uh, you know, directing in the studio system. Because basically those guys would, you know, once they would become established as screenwriters, they would drive their price up so high that it became a bargain to a studio if they said, well, look, I'll, you know, write something for you for free or cheap if you let me direct it. And so Stone went from Midnight Express to uh, writing and directing a movie called The Hand, a horror film with Michael Caine uh, that was, you know, fairly big studio movie. Um, that came out in 81 and was not successful, I don't think. Um, you know, it's kind of, I kind of set his directing career way back. And so... Uh, and it, uh, although I think it's a quite a great movie, actually. I mean, I know that Stone uh, feels that I think I think he feels it was compromised in some ways, partly because they didn't they couldn't get the effects right that they wanted. I mean, it's basically a movie where Michael Caine plays an artist who loses his hand in a car accident, and then uh, it kind of comes back with like a life of its own um, and sort of acts out all of his, you know, darker psychological impulses. And they, they could never quite get the mechanical hands to work right. I think it was kind of a situation like the shark and jaws. And so uh, I know, you know, stone was sort of dissatisfied with the movie because I think he didn't get a lot of the footage that he needed and stuff like that. But if you watch the movie, not really knowing about any of that, it's, it's, it's a really, really good, good film, but it definitely, it set him back. He didn't direct again for several years. Um, I kind of had to go back to uh, being a screenwriter for hire and in the process wrote uh, a couple of the greatest American films of the 80s, in my opinion. Let's dive a little bit more into that screenwriting. I'm looking at 1982's Conan the Barbarian, which, of course, immediately you say Conan the Barbarian, people immediately think Arnold Schwarzenegger or Dino De Laurentiis production. I was actually quite surprised to find out that Stone actually wrote the screenplay on that. Yeah, and I, I'm not sure how much of his script really survived. The I, I, you know, I know that John Milius, who directed it, rewrote it pretty heavily, and uh, I'm not, I don't know that a lot of Stone's work, I think Stone may have had, you know, some different, uh, a different kind of take on it than what they ended up going with, but, but, you know, Stone is very interested, I think, in mythology and heroes and things like that. I mean, I think if you look at a movie like Alexander, you kind of see uh, a lot of those interests in, in it, but, um, but, you know, Conan was, and I was, as a kid, I was, gosh, let's see, 82, so I was, I think, 10, when Conan came out and I remember seeing it in the theater and I remember at that time already being very conscious of who Oliver Stone was. Like I was excited for that movie because it was written by Oliver Stone basically because of the next friend. But yeah, I don't, I, I don't know that that one, and I think it's a great movie. love Conan, but I don't know that it is one that you put in, you know, that you would call like, I think it's definitely more of a John Milius movie, than Oliver Stone movie. Whereas I think, the screenplay that Stone wrote after it, Scarface, I think one of the amazing things about Scarface is it is both, it is a great Brian De Palma movie, 
it's a great Oliver Stone movie, and it's a great Al Pacino movie. Why don't you take me through your first experience seeing Scarface? Well, Scarface, much like Midnight Express, was kind of, for me as a kid, a movie that, a notorious movie I was dying to see long before I actually saw it. And I didn't see Scar, you know, my parents wouldn't let me see Scarface in the theater. And so, and I, you know, I remember it was the forbidden fruit. It was just a movie I desperately wanted to see. I was obsessed with both Oliver Stone and Brian De Palma. I mean, De Palma, certainly the, you know, I don't know if any filmmakers had had more of an impact on me as a kid and a developing film fan as De Palma. I was just completely enamored of his movies, I think, partly because they, he was a great director and partly because, again, it was that forbidden fruit aspect. I often wasn't allowed to see them, so I was sneaking, you know, video copies or, or you know, staying up to watch them in somebody's basement on HBO or whatever. And anyway, so I was dying to see Scarface, especially because it was so notorious. I mean, it was a film that... That a lot of people, you know, for a movie that now is considered a classic, um, you know, a lot of people really hated that movie when it came out. I remember Ebert, Roger Ebert was a, a big fan of it, but a lot of people just thought it was kind of this pornography of violence and, and, uh, which of course only made me want to see it more, uh, when I would hear about things like the chainsaw scene and that it had more swearing than any movie ever made and all those, all those kinds of things as a, you know, 11 year old kid. Uh, I definitely wanted to see it, but I didn't catch up with it. For a few, I didn't see it for a few years until I could get my hands on a video copy. You know, so so for many years that was the only way I saw it was a pan and scanned, you know, VHS, terrible transfer, all those things. And yet, the the power of Stone's writing and the power of De Palma's filmmaking are almost uh, you you cannot they cannot be denied no matter what format you watch that movie. And I guess unless you watch the network TV version where they, uh, you know, instead of saying things like, uh, where'd you get that scar, tough guy eating pussy? They say, where'd you get that scar, tough guy eating pineapple? I guess that version, maybe the power isn't quite there. But but anyway, my I remember being blown away by it the first time I saw it. I mean, the boldness of that movie on every level, uh, you know, aesthetically, politically, the you know, the, the excess of that film, which I think was misunderstood. And I think it's still misunderstood in a way. I mean, I think it's, you know, Godard has this quote where he said that, um, all great movies become popular for the wrong reasons. I don't know that that's entirely true, but I think Scarface is a definite case in point. I mean, I'm, I'm always mystified by the way Tony Montana has become a kind of icon to rappers and, you know, the, the way people like look at that movie as though it's kind of an aspirational, tale when uh you know I, I think it's really it's a three-hour portrait of a complete you know idiot and thug and it's kind of the whole movie is kind of a savage takedown of 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 capitalism and the excesses of capitalism and and kind of uh you know the, uh, it's it's a you know very scathing satire on the american dream and it's, it's kind of a middle finger to frank capra almost um you know, and I think it's a really fascinating movie to watch nowadays because I think you could certainly draw uh, a lot of parallels between the story of the rise of Tony Montana and the, that movie and, and Donald Trump. I mean, they're both these kind of e egomaniacal, narcissistic, you know, impulse-driven, foul-mouthed characters who are, you know, who are kind of excessive in every way, and uh, in both cases, kind of. Um, <clears throat> you know, became the, the, the excess, you know, made them very successful. I mean, of course, uh, we'll see what the end is for Donald Trump. It didn't end so well for, for Tony Montana, which is again, a reason why I'm always mystified by the fact that people like have 
you know, the poster on their wall as though it's something, you know, he's somebody they worship. But the same thing happened with Stone several years later with Gordon Gecko in Wall Street. I mean, that was a movie that was and a character that was supposed to be a, a villain of sorts. And uh, he ended up being kind of embraced as a hero by a lot of a lot of people on Wall Street. In trying to condense the following, I'm going to get you to try to uh, sure. cond- condense this answer as quick as possible. Well, not as quick as possible, because there's really a whole episode based on the next question I'm going to ask you. Mm-hmm. For those who aren't aware, take me through Michael Camino, the deer hunter, to Heaven's Gate, falling off the map, and then the, the year of the dragon. Michael Cimino, by the time uh, the mid-80s rolled around, had had a very dramatic up-and-down career. I mean, in 1978, he directed his second film, The Deer Hunter, which was a huge, huge hit, a huge triumph because it was kind of a, an underdog movie. I mean, it was a three-hour film about the Vietnam War, which the studios had really not touched up until that point, barely, except for, you know, John Wayne's The Green Berets and a couple other things. So Deer Hunter was this massive, massive triumph. Two years later, Chimino makes Heaven's Gate, which is as big a flop as Deer Hunter is a hit, even though it's, in my opinion, a better movie and a, a, a great movie. And it drives me nuts to this day when people refer to Heaven's Gate as this, you know, something Chimino should be ashamed of. But anyway, Heaven's Gate flopped. And Chimino was, you know, basically for several years, he had a really tough time getting a job. He was fired off of Footloose. Come 1985, he gets kind of a, another a second chance in the form of Dino De Laurentiis, who hires Chimino to direct uh, Year of the Dragon, which when I mentioned earlier that Stone, you know, wrote some of the greatest American films of the 80s, I put Year of the Dragon in that category. I think it is an absolutely fantastic ferocious movie and much like scarface is kind of a beautiful synthesis of stone sensibility with its director and you you don't always get that when you have like a really strong directorial personality and a really strong personality like stones you know chimino and stone are both extremely extremely strong extremely extremely distinctive and sometimes that kind of thing cancels you know, strong voices can cancel each other out. Uh, this is kind of a weird random example, but I always think about George Romero's film of Stephen King's The Dark Half. I feel like in a weird way that that movie is weirdly bland and it's, it's almost like Stephen King and Romero's strong personalities cancel each other out. Year of the Dragon is a movie that just takes Stone's ferociousness and his attention to journalistic detail. You know, it's a movie about basically Mickey Rourke is a cop in uh, Chinatown and it has this sort of, you know, anthropological detail that is, I think, one of Stone's great strengths as a writer, combined with his kind of ferocious intensity. And then you've got Chimino's just absolute mastery of visual language. I mean, it's such a, a visually elegant, expertly choreographed movie. And it all comes together to make what I think is just one of the great American action movies of the 80s. Uh, and, you know, with a great performance by Mickey Rourke at the center of it. When we were previously talking a couple months ago, we were talking a little bit about Oliver Stone when we weren't recording. And you made the case, starting in 1986, Stone went on an epic run that pretty much no director has copied since or has been done before. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. No one has had a string like Stone had from 1986 to 1995. I mean, in that year, a 10-year period, he directs and, and writes in, in, in all these cases. He directs, writes and directs Salvador, Platoon, Wall Street, Talk Radio, Born on the Fourth of July, The Doors, JFK, 
Heaven and Earth, Natural Born Killers, and Nixon. So he writes and directs 10 films in 10 years, which, again, there are people who have done it. You know, Woody Allen has done it. Uh, Clint Eastwood has, has done 10 movies in a 10-year period, whatever. But no director ever has done 10 movies at that level of scale and ambition in that period of time and at that level of excellence. I mean, I think every single one of those movies is just flat out great. And in some cases, I think they're some of the greatest movies ever made. I mean, I think JFK is one of the, is, is one of the greatest movies ever. And I think it changed film grammar. I think people, the edit, the, the way that movie is edited and the way that story is told. I mean, that people now, now it's, you know, you see it on TV series, but at the time it was unbelievable how radical that film was for a major studio release. Um, but anyway, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there are directors who I certainly place who I think are as great as Stone, you know, Scorsese, certainly, you know, De Palma, Coppola, you know, there, there's, I'm not saying that no one, I'm not saying there's no one that, you know, has directed great movies as great as him, but nobody's ever done it. You know, again, you know, you know, Scorsese will have, uh, he'll have a couple years in between movies. Stone was just on a tear for 10 years. And it was it was unbelievably exciting to be a film lover during that time. I mean, I cannot overstate how thrilling it was to be, you know, I was a teenager when during the first part of that. And then I was in film school when JFK came out and, uh, you know, Natural Born Killers. And to be a film student going to those movies, it was you know, it just just to know that every time you went to a movie of his, you were going to have your mind completely blown. You know, the, it, it, there was nothing like it. Let's just go over those 10 films, you know, spending a couple minutes talking about each one. So let's start with Salvador, 1986. It's real raw, raw democracy, free elections, all that. And I think that's what the networks are going to want tonight. So what's your sign? Stop. That's really cute. I thought it was slippery when wet. Yeah, this article... <laughs> And you, Pauline, are 100% and unequivocally full of shit. Who's talking, Boyle? You and your friend are so full of shit, I can't believe it. I resent you. You know what I resent? All people tell I resent me. what we saw in Santa Ana the other day. Oh, yeah, what was that? It was a kid shot in the head and hanged from a tank because he didn't have his fucking cedula. You know what a cedula is? Yeah, I know what a cedula is. What I'm saying is, if you're going to analyze the situation, just analyze it right. I mean, you don't have a cedula on election day stamped, you're dead democracy. I mean, what, what kind of democracy is it when, when you have to vote, and if you don't vote, you're branded a commie subversivo? I mean, these people would vote for Donald Duck, Genghis Khan, or whoever the local cop tells them to, because if they don't, this is what happens. And you're just a real fucking pro, Boyle, aren't you? That's I'm why you can't even Connor. last two weeks with the network. Let's go get a drink. Fucking yuppies. They do a stand-up from the roof of the Camino Royale. I think they got the whole story. Oh, yes. He likes my ass. My two weeks in El Salvador by Pauline Axel. Oh, yeah. Hiding under a bed Pouring and drinking my way through El Salvador well, by Richard Boyle. with you, blowjob queen of New York. I don't Executive squeeze, wall to wall, huh? Kissing all the right asses. No wonder you get your glamour puss on the networks. Excuse me. Okay, look, Pauline, look, Fuck off, come Boyle. on, just be a sport. Well, yeah, I'm an asshole. I'm an asshole, right? So Salvador is, in, a, in a essence, kind of Stone's second first film. I mean, you know, he had done Seizure in the Hand before, neither of which were successful. Uh, I think he kind of figured out that he wasn't, maybe, you know, the horror genre wasn't necessarily his thing. Although, again, I like both of those movies. But Salvador is really the movie that establishes stone the way people think of him you know it's a political movie it's a it's about american involvement in el salvador in the 80s it's you know kind of a, a very incisive 
analysis of our foreign policy during that era, but also kind of married to this great character study of this extremely, in, in many ways, unlikable protagonist, uh, Richard Boyle, played by, by James Woods, who's based on a real guy, uh, photojournalist. And, you know, I think you see a lot of it, it, the just basically, like I said, the things that Stone would, would go on to really be known for, the, the sort of very sophisticated political analysis, the very, very elegant and profane dialogue that you get in that movie. And again, just the level of ambition. I mean, so this is a movie he made for not that much money and it is epic. I mean, the last time I watched it, you know, I was shocked at the scale that that movie is on and which of course would carry over into the film he would make right after it, Platoon, which was released in the same year. They were both, they both came out in 1986. I mean, again, like who, aside from maybe Spielberg, the year that he had, uh, Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. It's like what what director ever had a year like 1986 with Oliver Stone, where you, you know you have Salvador and Platoon in the same year. Hey, white boy, what you waiting for? That hole ain't gonna dig itself. Come on, boy, get your dick skin on that thing. Dig. We can get all day. Dig, dig. Somebody once wrote, "Hell is the impossibility of reason." That's what this place feels like. Hell. I hate it already, and it's only been a week. Some goddamn week, Grandma. The hardest thing I think I've ever done is go on point three times this week. I don't even know what I'm doing. A gook could be standing three feet in front of me and I wouldn't know it. I'm so tired. We get up at 5 a.m., hump all day, camp around 4 or 5, dig a foxhole, eat, then put out an all-night ambush or a three-man listening post in the jungle. It's scary because nobody tells me how to do anything because I'm new. Nobody cares about the new guys. They don't even want to know your name. The unwritten rule is a new guy's life isn't worth as much because he hasn't put his time in yet. And they say if you're going to get killed in the Nam, it's better to get it in the first few weeks. The logic being, you don't suffer that much. If you're lucky, you get to stay in the perimeter at night. And then you pull a three-hour guard shift. So maybe you sleep three, four hours a night, but you don't really sleep. I don't think I can keep this up for a year, Grandma. I think I've made a big mistake coming here. What was his intent and what was his objective with Platoon? You know, I think with Platoon, what he wanted to do was really present the Vietnam War from the perspective of a soldier on the ground. The movies that had been made about the war up until that time, The Deer Hunter and Apocalypse Now, for example, are great movies, but they're great sort of myths they're great spectacles uh and i think he wanted to make a film you know having been in a warrior himself and and you know this is again what's interesting about stone i think the reason he's such a great filmmaker is because he is a man of so many i don't know if i call them contradictions but he's just he just has such a complex view of the world i mean he's a decorated warrior who hates war and is you know, anti-wars and, you know, and, and platoon is kind of, I think his goal was basically just to, to uh, present his experience in as honest and visceral means possible. And again, I think nowadays that movie has been so widely imitated that you can kind of take it for granted, but I cannot begin to describe to you the experience of watching that movie in a theater in 1986 when it came out it was the the scene in that the early scene in that movie where charlie sheen's character falls asleep while he's on point i mean 
that was like, it was like an out of body experience watching that movie in a theater. I mean, I think Stone really did accomplish what he set out to, uh, you know, obviously, you know, Sam Fuller said you can't really make a movie about the experience of war unless you have someone under the screen shooting rounds at the audience. Uh, but I think Platoon came about as close as you, you possibly could. We haven't talked at all yet about the fact that, you know, in later years, Stone would become somewhat controversial with some of his films. And I, you need to take me back to 86 for a minute because, frankly, I'm a little bit younger than you, so 86 is not really in my wheelhouse. Was Platoon controversial during its release or during the time it was in theaters? It was a little bit. I mean, not to the degree that he would be later, but even with Platoon, you know, it was a very celebrated film. It won the Oscar for Best Picture, um, and, you know, I believe he won for Best Director. But it and it was a big moneymaker, shockingly. I mean, it was a it was a blockbuster. But it did have its detractors. There were a lot of, uh, especially on the right, the, the right-wing media w- saw it as somehow being... Uh, unpatriotic and un-American because there's a very disturbing and famous sequence in the movie where the American soldiers, you know, go into a village and, you know, shoot it, you know, basically shoot it up. And it's kind of a kind of a parallel to the Millet um, massacre. And that scene basically you know, it was seen by some people. At, there were there were people who, you know, well, actually, it was attacked from both the right and the left because you know the right wing was attacking it, saying Stone was sullying the you know the reputations of our soldiers and of America and all that kind of stuff. And then on the left, there were people who basically said that Stone, you know, if this was an autobiographical film and if he did these kinds of things and witnessed these kinds of things, that essentially he was a war criminal. So he was being attacked right out of the gate, even with a movie like Platoon that was, just, you know, overall pretty beloved. It was the start of something that would hound him his entire career, which was, you know, he, I think, and I think it's because Stone makes such powerful movies. I mean, I don't think he would be attacked as often. I think it's in a way, I mean, it's a compliment to him that he is attacked as frequently and with the intensity that he is, because I think part of it is that he does make movies that really hit you on an emotional level. I mean, he is a very uh, skilled you know, I, I, I manipulator, and I use that word. I don't use that in a negative sense. I mean, I think all directors are manipulative. It's always it always makes me laugh when people criticize a movie for being manipulative. Any good movie is manipulative. I mean, that's part of the, the point. Um, and Stone is a master manipulator. He knows how to use the tools of cinema to really get under your skin and to really move you. I don't think it's possible to watch one of his films and be indifferent. And so Platoon kind of kicked off what would be a pattern for Stone, which would be that his movies would get a lot of media attention. And not all of it favorable. For the younger listeners, I wonder if you could take a moment and kind of describe what the excess of the 1980s was like, you know, where the term yuppie was coined, and what Stone's film Wall Street said about the excess of the 1980s. Public's out there throwing darts at a board, sport. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. You're not as smart as I thought you were, buddy boy. You wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. I've been in this business since 69. Most of these Harvard MBA types, they don't add up to dog shit. Give me guys that are poor, smart, and hungry, and no feelings. You win a few, you lose a few, 
but you keep on fighting. And if you need a friend, get a dog. It's trench warfare out there, pal. Hey, Georgie. Hey, Gordon. How's Larchmont treating you? Fine. How's the Praxor deal going? Oh, you should know, pal. Asshole. And inside here, too. I got 20 other brokers analyzing charts, pal. I don't need another one. See you around, buddy. I am not just another broker, Mr. Gecko. If you give me another chance, I'll prove that to you. I'll go with the extra yards. Just one more chance, Mr. Gecko. Please! You want another chance? Fucking A. And you stop sending me information. And you start getting me some. Get dressed. I'll show you my charts. During the 80s, it was this kind of rise of the, you know, of Wall Street and the the, the investment bankers and, and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of it was because under Reagan, uh, a lot of, you know, Wall Street got increasingly deregulated. And so it became this kind of wild west where just insane amounts of money could be made more so than before. And money could be made as much. It wasn't so much about building things like it used to be. I think I think what Stone's movie speaks to is this transition where Wall Street in the kind of, you know, traditional Republican sense, uh, it was about building things. It was about building businesses. It was about industry and ambition and, uh, you know, the, the, the whole idea. It was, it was just, it was more, uh, positive. What guys figured out in the eighties was that they could make as much or more money by breaking up companies as by building them. And so, whereas the, you know, the kind of titans, the financial titans of earlier generations had been people who built companies, who built products, who, you know, sold services. Uh, there became this whole class of people who, you know, these kind of corporate raiders who would figure out ways of making money by destroying companies. And that's kind of what the Gordon Gecko character in Wall Street is. But there's also this romanticization of making money for its own sake that I, I that I think was a little different. I can't really, I don't know if I can describe it, but in the 80s, it was, you know, uh, Brady Stanellis really, I think, kind of captures it well in his novel, um, American Psycho. I'm not the world's biggest fan of the movie version of that, but the, the, the book American Psycho, I think came out maybe in the early 90s, but it was, it, it was really kind of summed up that whole attitude. And Stone, I think, in Wall Street, kind of wanted to make a movie about how that culture had changed. You know, his father was a stockbroker on Wall Street. And I think Stone had a very, you know, I think, he had a, again, as in all things, I think he had a very complex view of it. I don't think he was, he wasn't some lefty anti-capitalist. I mean, he's definitely, he definitely is a, I think, sees the value of the capitalist system and admires it and admires the way it is used to create things, but because he admires it, in that sense, he's also disgusted by when it doesn't work. And that's kind of what Scarface is about, and it's definitely what Wall Street is about. Correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, as revered as Wall Street is today, it wasn't a huge box office hit. Am I correct in assuming that? Well, it, you know, it did, it, it did, it did all right, but it wasn't, I think, you know, after Platoon, anything was going to seem like a little bit of a step down because Platoon made a lot of money, got great reviews. You know, Wall Street, I think Stone was very smart to make Wall Street immediately on the heels of Platoon, because I think, you know, a lot of 
directors when they have a huge phenomenon. I mean, when they have a movie that's a cultural, you know, an artistic and a commercial success and a cultural phenomenon the way that Platoon was, you know, a lot of directors will kind of freeze up and they won't know what to do next. And I mean, like, that's what I think happened with Tarantino after Pulp Fiction. It was several years before he made Jackie Brown. And, you know, Stone, I think, was very smart to just get right back in the saddle and make Wall Street. But I think, you know, whatever he did after Platoon was going to be consider a little bit of a disappointment and the movie it did okay and it got some good reviews it also was you know it it wasn't even as an admirer of the movie as somebody who loves it i would have to say it's not a perfect movie it doesn't it doesn't work you know as seamlessly as platoon does it's it's you know wall street i think is a movie where the great stuff is as great as anything stone ever did but then it's got a couple of these things you know i'm not that crazy about the female characters in the movie the daryl hannah and sean young stuff i don't think works as well as the relation the relationship between michael douglas and charlie sheen's character or martin sheen martin sheen's character and charlie sheen's character like that stuff is just fantastic and i think you know sean young is gives a very weird performance in that movie i think she was i I don't think her or daryl hannah were ever particularly comfortable with the parts they were playing i think sean young wanted daryl hannah's role from what i understand and she kind of gives this it's almost like she gives this intentionally weird performance as an act of defiance and i don't know you know i i don't know i don't know what it's it's a it's kind of it's so it's not a perfect movie so i get why it wasn't quite as celebrated and also at the time you know it was released by 20th century fox and they that same christmas season of 1987 they had broadcast news which is a great movie too but I think Fox really saw broadcast news as their that was going to be their Oscar movie. That was going to be their big Christmas movie. And I think they kind of put all their energies behind that uh, as opposed to Wall Street. And so Wall Street kind of came out and did OK. But was it was definitely not the phenomenon that the platoon was. So for Stone's next movie, 1988's Talk Radio, this is a movie that I recall seeing for the first time. It was in the late 90s. And it just, I think it was on HBO or it was on one of these pay cable channels. And I caught it from the beginning, but didn't pick up on the part that it was an Oliver Stone film. Putting all of that aside, I was riveted by that movie. And you had touched on the fact that it's a movie that basically takes place in one room. It's incredibly compelling. Let's discuss talk radio. Chet from Mesquite on the line. Yeah, Chet. So now everyone in the country can hear you. Oh, Chet, so nice to hear from you again. Shouldn't you be out burning crosses or molesting children or something? I'd much rather be talking to you. How about training pit bulls? I think you're so smart. You get the package I sent down to the station. Package? You got it. I know you did. Well, you sent me a present, Chet? See, I couldn't decide whether to use a timer or not. Guess you just have to find that out when you open it. Wait a minute, hold on, hold on. You're telling me you sent me a bomb in the mail? Wrapped in brown paper. See, I know you're looking at it right now. Yeah, you just take some C4, roll it in a pile of nuts and bolts, and it uh, pebbles. It does the job. Sounds interesting, Chet. I didn't receive your package. You sure you sent it to the right address? You got it. See, if I were you, I'd have my pretty assistant give the police a call. Take the bomb squad about ten minutes to get down Bomb squad? Why, why, why should I call the bomb squad, Chet? Because some pinheaded redneck moron calls me up and tells me there's a bomb in my mail? He who laughs last Yeah, laughs. oh, shut up. Night Talk. Denise, you're on Night Talk. So, yeah, Talk Radio was based on a couple of different sources. It was based on a play that was written by and starred Eric Bogosian, who also co-wrote the script with Stone and starred in the movie. And then it was also based on the life of a talk uh, radio host. His name was uh, something Berg, Alan Berg, maybe, I think. 
and um, who had been who was a very controversial figure who was uh, was murdered. And talk radio was to say it was not it was completely unsuccessful at the time of its release. It's never really caught on. You know, it never has. It's never really found a big audience. And yet I think it's one of Stone's best movies. Uh, I think it taps into something. I think Stone had a real he had a crystal ball. I mean, he knew that he and Bogosian somehow they really knew where the culture was going, because I think this the society we live in now, the rage that exists that I think social media has kind of amplified you know, the rage and divisiveness that exists in this country and the sort of just how dark it can go. Stone saw it in 1988. I mean, it is all there in talk radio. And it's a very, very unsettling movie. But again, uh, also, you know, not just a great political movie, not just a great State of the Union address, but a great character study. I mean, that's kind of, you know, much like Salvador. It's kind of a great companion piece. Uh, with Salvador. And it's a very formally interesting movie because it is Stone, in, you know, essentially making a movie that all takes place in a radio, you know, studio. In, in, in a, there's, there's a few like little digressions here and there where they go outside, but most of the movie takes place there. And it's, it's a great clinic in how to make a movie interesting that all takes place in one room. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's that famous scene, you know, I, I like to say that the monologue scene towards the end of the movie where he just goes, and it's, it's a single take. And it's, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I get excited just getting to that part in the movie because I know it's going to happen. And I just think it's, I mean, it's just, it's just a masterpiece of a film. And it, again, it's not one that, like you said, it's not one that people discuss. It's not, it's not the first one or the second or probably even the 10th film to come into mind when people mention Oliver Stone, but highly underrated. And, you know, for people listening, if you've never seen it, seek it out. It is incredible. I suspect that the reason it never really did well commercially and has never really been rediscovered is the fact that, you know, Eric Bogosian is the star and is not, you know, is not like a huge, I mean, he's obviously a great playwright, a great actor, you know, I mean, to anyone who's really serious about theater and film, they know who he is. But I think, you know, had that movie starred, I don't know, you know, Al Pacino or somebody as, uh, as Barry Champlain, I think it would have probably been a much much more famous movie than it is now off the record i'm not going to include this in the show mm-hmm. or maybe i will bogosian is the only saving grace for under siege 2 dark territory i just want to put that out for the record <laughs> he's the only saving he, grace. he's great yeah yeah so <laughs> you know i believe that Bogosian is fantastic in under siege 2 i i i think that is a great i actually i think eric bogosian in under siege 2 is a fantastic uh performance yeah i agree <laughs> let's let's roll into 1989 this is pivotal year for stone with the release of born on the fourth of july yeah and born on the fourth of july was a movie that stone had tried to get made for many years he actually wrote the screenplay in the late 70s around the same time as midnight express and it was going to get made in the late there were a couple there were, it went through a couple of incarnations i mean at one point i think william friedkin was attached to direct it and then maybe um daniel petrie or somebody like that i, I know it got it got very close uh, a couple of times to getting made with Al Pacino in the in the lead role in the late 70s I think maybe early 80s somewhere and and the plug got pulled for some reason on on it very close to production and I know Stone you know he always felt like he owed, I I think he felt like he he really wanted to um do right by Ron Kovic the man who's who wrote the book that the movie's based on and who Tom Cruise plays in it 
And so Stone never gave up on it. And when he got in a position where he was a commercially viable director, he finally got it made. And, you know, I think it's and, and, and you know, again, a big triumph for him, a big commercial triumph, a big critical triumph. Uh, he won the Best Director Oscar again for Born on the Fourth of July. And it is a kind of great it is more in the Capra mode. I mean, I think it is kind of a you know, it's a very. It's it's a very patriotic movie, and yet it's sort of it's it's sort of like a Capra movie in that it's a patriotic movie that has a real real dark streak. I mean, there is stuff in that movie that is as harsh as anything I've ever seen in an American movie. I mean, for a film that is ultimately quite inspiring, uh, the scene when Tom Cruise, the, the, some of the stuff with you know Tom Cruise and his his mother, I mean, is uh, extremely, um, it's almost like something out of a Cassavetes movie or something. It's very, very emotionally brutal and raw, which again, speaks to something else that's great about Stone, which is that he can make a movie that has this sort of superficial gloss to it. You know, Born on the Fourth of July is very kind of beautiful in an old fashioned way. I mean, it's, you know, it's a very traditionally gorgeous film and then it has this emo, but it has this like emotional rawness and brutality and realism to it that is more like something out of the American independent film movement that is out of like, you know, Cassavetes or an Elaine May movie like Mikey and Nicky or something like that. Would you people help me, huh? What's the matter with you? I don't feel right. I don't feel right either. I need to see the doctor. I need to see him now! Not available now. I want to see him now! He's always too busy, isn't he? What's eating you now, Colby? Fucking shit! Going out the deep end. Amputate that leg, you go on like this. What do I have to do? What do I have to do? Make you people listen to me. Don't ever put your hands on All me. All I'm You're saying is I just want to be treated like a human being. Yeah. Yeah. What in the shit? Just want to keep me okay, fucking drunk so I don't know what's going on around here, man. This place is a fucking slum. What out, man? Fine. We take that leg of yours, we get you out of here in two weeks. I want my leg. What? I want my leg. Why? You can't feel it no how? It's my leg. I want my leg, you understand? Can't you understand that? All I'm saying is I want to be treated like a human being. I fought for my country. I am a Vietnam veteran. I fought for my country. So fucking, I deserve to be treated for... Decent! Vietnam. Decent! Vietnam. I heard that right, you fuck! Vietnam don't mean nothing to me, man. Or any of these other people. You got it? You see, you can take your Vietnam and shove it up your ass. Go on, you Harvey. Go on. Go on, Jim. No, I think hey. I don't need this. Hey, you fuck! Hey! No. God damn you! God damn it! I am a fucking Vietnam veteran! <laughs> Marvin! Marvin, now! Marvin! What's up? What's up? Marvin, fuck! Oh, fuck! Stop working. Watch it. Get the doctor. Wait a minute. Just get the doctor. Wait, all right. All right. All right. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. I will. I will. Will you definitively say whether Cruz is better in Born on the Fourth of July or Magnolia? Will you say it right now? <laughs> oh, boy. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Well, let me ask you this and follow up. Would those okay. be his two best performances, Born on the Fourth of July and Magnolia? Uh, I would throw Eyes Wide Shut in there with those okay. two, but but um, but I would say, I would, yeah, those would be the top three, and it would be really hard for me. I mean, I think, you know, Born on the Fourth of July certainly was, I think, 
the move that was like the movie that showed everybody what Cruz could really do. I mean, he was, you know, he's always a great actor, I think. And but but that movie, you know, Born on the Fourth of July, I yeah, I don't know. But to pick between that and Magnolia, it's like asking a parent to choose their favorite gotcha. child. And, and that's you know, know what? That's the best answer you could give right there. So, <laughs> you know, you mentioned in 1986, Salvador Platoon, same year. Let's forward to 1991, another year, two films released. Let's start with The Doors. Okay, they're called The Doors, and they've got the number one single in the country right now, Light Your Fire. Light Your Fire, is that right? Yes. Now, they're not your usual group, but I think they're going to fit in just fine. Everything's going to be fine. The riot continues in Detroit with 1,400 buildings burned at 42. I wonder Light My Fire is number one. So, what's your room number? Um, I'll talk to you later, okay? Very serious hair. Are you pinching her butt? What about me? I, I don't want to open up that kettle of worms. Okay. What about you, handsome? What can we do? Some of the worst mistakes in my life have been here, kids. Okay, honey, please, please. Okay, okay, all right. Be me. Be me. Thank you, her. Boys, boys. Thank you. Meet Mr. Sullivan. My fellas, fellas, just, just wait. I heard your record. I'd like that fire. Light your fire. Like that. Just like my fire. Great, fine. Just really, really fine. Well, I have one little thing to bring up. It's a small thing, but it's important. The guys at Network have told us that they have a little problem with one of your lyrics, the lyric, girl, we couldn't get much higher. See, because you can't say higher on Network, so they asked if you could say instead, girl, we can't get much better. Can you dig that? How about, uh, girl, you couldn't bite my wire? Uh, I don't think standards and practices would. And you know, fellas, why don't you have a nice big smile on your face when you get out there? There's no point in being sullen. You know what I mean? So just, just do a kind of sullen group, man. You boys should know Mr. Sullivan is considering you boys for four more shows. You dig? We dig. We dig, and we're, I'm going to work it out. Just give me five minutes, okay? Okay. okay. Right, groovy. Groovy. It's groovy. Just okay. give me five. Okay? Have a great show, okay? Oh, come on, John. It's just a word, Jim. Stones changed when they played here. Yeah. Why don't you change your name to, uh, Sydney or, or Irving Manzarek? It's just a word. Hey, man. My words, I don't care. Let's just jam. Yeah, and it's the, the Doors comes out in 1991, and, uh, you know, I think 1991 is the year that Stone, he kicks it up another notch um, as a sort of cinematic experimenter i mean i think you could say that you know salvador platoon wall street to a lesser degree talk radio and born on the fourth of july all of those are great movies they're but they're all great movies kind of using the same language that american movies had always used you know they're they're they're, they're in a certain in certain traditions and what happens in 1991 with the doors and jfk is Stone starts to kind of create his own language. It gets to it, it, it. This is when his movies, you could take his name off the credits and you would know within five seconds you were watching an Oliver Stone movie because there's just certain editorial techniques and a, certain elliptical ways of telling the story that I think are unique to him. And The Doors is, um, you know, it's not as radical as JFK, but it's sort of the, the beginning of that. And I think, I think, and I think he had to make the doors before JFK because I think the, the doors kind of freed him up because it was in essence a musical and that you can always be more experimental and more playful with the musical form I think than with any other 
Hollywood genre, you know, I mean, like look at La La Land, for example, you know, it's, it's, it's like you can, you can do more, you can just be more inventive with form and people will accept it in a musical because a musical is already kind of an abstraction in a way. And so the doors is like kind of a, has these, you know, it's, it's, it's in a way, it's kind of like a break, I think for stone from the, the really, really heavy content that his movies had had up until then. I mean, I think the doors, he's kind of, it, it was kind of a chance for him to become, more playful. I mean, obviously it's a sixties movie and all that, but it's not an overtly political movie the way that, that the other stuff he had done up until that point was, it is really more just kind of a celebration of Jim Morrison and his music. And I think that freed something up in stone. And then after that, that led to JFK where it all comes together in what I think is probably along with Goodfellas, which came out the year before it, I think Goodfellas and JFK are sort of the, they're pretty much the two most important American movies since Citizen Kane in terms of their influence and in terms of just reinventing what you could do in a movie. And I think JFK has a lot of parallels with Citizen Kane in terms of it being both a supreme, a supremely innovative piece of filmmaking and a truly great complex epic about uh, the American character and about, in the case of JFK, about the paranoia at the heart of the American character, which, again, boy, did Oliver Stone have a crystal ball and know where we were going. And, you know, I'd like to spend a, a little bit of time talking about JFK because I, I'm really trying to put the listeners, trying to get them to understand the time frame, what it was like just before that film came out and what it was like after the release of that film. Because to say it was the, it's easily his most polarizing movie. It was easily his most controversial film up to that point, maybe ever. Uh, it literally created laws. I mean, we got the JFK files released because of that movie. I wonder if you talk, talk a little bit, because you said you were in film school at the time. Where do you feel like the average American citizen stood on the JF, JFK assassination, the conspiracy pre JFK and then post JFK? Well, I think people would be surprised to realize how much people didn't think about it as a mass cultural thing the way they did once JFK came out. I mean, I think, interestingly, I think the whole idea of people viewing the JFK assassination as something where there was a conspiracy, that was very heavily influenced by by movies. I mean, basically, the public, two movies, I think, had a big effect on how the public saw the American public saw the JFK assassination. The first was a movie that was made in the seventies called executive action with Robert Ryan and Burt Lancaster, which is not the, in my opinion, any it's, I don't think it's really that great of a movie and it's not certainly not the, not sophisticated in the way that stones film is, but it was kind of a, it was kind of the first movie that awakened people i mean obviously there have been conspiracy theories and all that kind of stuff but in terms of like the mainstream american public going huh is there something here that was the movie that made people start thinking about it and that was in the mid-70s and then you know but it, but it's still it wasn't really at the forefront of the american culture until stone made his movie and then it really you know that was i'm trying to think what if there's i you know i don't think any movie nowadays it's, it's really hard to make younger people understand uh, a film like JFK and what it meant in the culture, because you don't have those kinds of films now. I mean, it's not possible because the culture is too splintered. There are too many, 
you know, there's too much competition for our eyeballs and for our entertainment. You know, there's no single TV show or film now, even a really big one, it permeates the culture the way a movie could, the way that JFK could, or the way that Platoon could. It just, it just doesn't happen. I mean, even something like Get Out or Stranger Things or, you know, the, you know, you know, things that are, that are kind of big and of their cultural moment. The number of people seeing them and talking about them now, it's just not the same thing because back then we had so many fewer options for entertainment. You didn't have as many, you know, you didn't have as many cable channels and certainly you didn't have, none of them were, you know, aside from HBO, they weren't making original content the same way. You had no, you didn't have streaming. You didn't have the internet. You know, you didn't have any of these things. And so when a movie like JFK came along, everybody was talking about it. Everybody went to see it. Everybody knew what it was. And so then everybody had an opinion all of a sudden about the JFK assassination. So now a single bullet remains. A single bullet now has to account for the remaining seven wounds in Kennedy and Conley. But rather than admit to a conspiracy or investigate further, the Warren Commission chose to endorse the theory put forth by an ambitious junior counselor, Arlen Specter, one of the grossest lies ever forced on the American people. We've come to know it as the magic bullet theory. The magic bullet enters the president's back, headed downward at an angle of 17 degrees. It then moves upward in order to leave Kennedy's body from the front of his neck. Wound number two, where it waits 1.6 seconds, presumably in midair, where it turns right, then left, right, then left, and continues into Conley's body at the rear of his right armpit. Wound number three. The bullet then heads downward at an angle of 27 degrees, shattering Conley's fifth rib and exiting from the right side of his chest. Wound number four. The bullet then turns right, and re-enters Conley's body at his right wrist. Wound number five. Shattering the radius bone, the bullet then exits Conley's wrist. Wound number six. Makes a dramatic U-turn and buries itself into Conley's left thigh. Wound number seven, from which it later falls out and is found in almost pristine condition on a stretch in a court or Parkland Hospital. That's some bullet. Anyone who's been in combat will tell you never in the history of gunfire has there been a bullet this ridiculous. Yet the government says it can prove it with some fancy physics in a nuclear laboratory. Of course they can. Theoretical physics can prove that an elephant can hang from a cliff with his tail tied to a daisy. <laughs> but use your eyes, your common sense. The Army wound ballistics experts at Edward Arsenal fired some comparison bullets. Not one of them looked anything like this. You know, there were people like myself and Roger Ebert who thought that it was that movie was, you know, the best film of the year and 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 all that kind of thing. And then there were people who thought Stone was doing an extreme disservice by putting what they thought were lies out into the public sphere and pe having people treat them as fact. And you know, I think the Stone's defense was that. He, he never claimed the movie, you know, he, he never claimed the movie was from beginning to end all, you know, factual. I mean, he, he, he described it as a counter myth to the Warren Commission. You know, he saw that as a, he saw the accepted wisdom on the assassination, the idea that Oswald acted alone. He saw that as a myth and he was doing a counter myth. And, and, and throughout the film, if you look at it, you know, it does, it does, you know, I think that it, 
presumes a certain amount of sophistication on the part of the audience. And, uh, you know, in the sense that the movie is telling you throughout that what you're looking at are suppositions, you know, not necessarily things that the, that stone as a director is saying are true. He's saying they might be true or he's asking, are they true? And he's telling you to ask if they're true. And I think a lot of the people who didn't like JFK, I don't think they were reviewing the movie as much as they were reviewing what they thought was the audience. And, and it was kind of a thing of people were, you know, I think a lot of, com- a lot of the, the commentary on the movie was extremely condescending because it was essentially saying, well, I'm smart enough to know what stone is doing here, but these morons out there in mainstream America who are going to see it, they're too dumb to get it. And so I'm protecting them from, from him. That was kind of the sort of thrust of the argument. I think, you know, you mentioned that this was a movie that, you know, everybody was talking about. And, you know, you just invoked a memory that I hadn't thought of until I guess it would have been probably, you know, in, back in the 90s, especially the early 90s, movies weren't released on home video, obviously, what, six months after their theatrical release, right. sometimes like that. But I remember coming home from school one day and my parents coming home from work and my dad had, you know, this was a three hour movie. So it was two VHS tapes. You know, he had the right. rent, rented copy of JFK. And that is the first and only time I ever remember my parents ever renting a movie. Whenever we went to the video <laughs> store, it was always my brother and I would get something, my sister and I would get something. But my dad actually came home with a copy of JFK, and my mom and my dad sat in the living room, didn't let my brother and I see it, and watched the movie. So that really speaks to what you're talking about, where everybody was talking about this movie, everybody was seeing this movie. Yeah, and I think that was – it was kind of the tail end of that kind of thing because, again, I think you know, 10 years later – what, but when the internet came along, you know, uh, and, and again, today, like, there's just, you know, the, the best analogy I can use to, to, in terms of the show, the difference in this is like nowadays, a show is considered a huge hit. A TV show is considered a huge hit if 10 million people watch it. You know, back in the 80s and early 90s, if only 10 million people watched something, you know, a, a like fully 10 million people watched a network TV show, the creators were ready to slit their wrists. I mean, this was like a period when 40 to 60 million people would watch something. Cause, and it was, again, it was just because there weren't as many options. You didn't have Netflix, you didn't have Hulu, you didn't have all these things. And, and so I just, I don't know that that'll ever happen again, that a movie will have that kind of cultural impact the way that JFK did. I just don't know if it's possible anymore. Let's move on to 1993 and another Oliver Stone film dealing with the Vietnam War. And we're talking about 1993's Heaven and Earth. She wants more. No fucking reason. Money goes like water around here. I got five kids. Five, including your little bastard. Green car owns my butt, my body, and my soul. I got nothing of my own. Then why use $400 on two more guns, Steve Howard? Don't you get it? You're still bitching about money. That's a little good, can you? No, you got me that Steve Butler. You have no right. These goddamn guns are worth something. I can sell them right now for twice what I got in them. One day they could be the only thing to stand between you and death. Death? Death from who? You're the only person who waves gun around here. You're the only person who jinxes and shoots. I don't need you to tell me what I should and what I should not have. They are my sons, too, and I'm going to take them up into the mountains, learn how to hunt, and shoot. Thank you! Yeah, his most underrated movie, uh, in my opinion. I just saw it again on the big screen uh, not that long ago, a few months ago, and was completely blown away by it. And it's, uh, you know, it's an interesting stone film in that it is again it's very spiritual it's very contemplative it's i mean of course it's oliver stone so you know his version of a spiritual contemplative movie still has extreme 
you know, violence and confrontation and all that kind of thing. Uh, but it's and it's also one of his few movies that has a female protagonist. And, and I and I have to say, I do think even in spite of what I just has said a little earlier about Wall Street, I think Stone gets kind of a bum rap as far as his women characters go. You know, he's 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 gotten kind of criticized over the years, including by Matt Zoller Seitz, who is a great critic who wrote a great book on Stone and is probably the most intelligent and articulate commentator on Stone. But even he, he kind of bad. He kind of thinks that Stone he is not so great with female characters or certainly wasn't in his early days. And, and, and I think that's really kind of unfair. I mean, I think that Pat Nixon, for example, and Nixon is a, an incredible female character. Uh, certainly the lead in Heaven and Earth is, I, I mean, I think the, Juliet Lewis character in Natural Born Killers is a great character. I mean, she's not a particularly likable character necessarily, but anyway, Heaven and Earth um, is a you know it's a very beautiful film, and and again, I think it was sort of a, an act of atonement on Stone's part. I think he felt like well, Platoon Born on the Fourth of July took on the Vietnam War from the American side. He wanted to make a movie that was from the Vietnamese perspective. He based it on the memoirs of a woman, um, uh, you know, from Vietnam who experienced the war there and then came over to America, and I think. You know, he wanted he I think he, you know, he wanted to honor that perspective. Unfortunately, American audiences didn't give a shit about the Vietnamese perspective. And it was, you know, very, very commercially unsuccessful film. But I think uh, a very quite beautiful one and one that deserves to be better seen. And that brings us to the first Oliver Stone film that I saw in the theater in high school. And I say that with a little bit of trepidation because it was an experience to say the least. Uh, I don't, I, I can honestly admit now because let's see, 94, I would have been 16 years old and my brain was not able to properly process what I had seen. I think I came away from the movie not liking it in the least. And I think as the years have gone on, I've grown to to respect the movie a lot more. So I've got a few questions I'm going to roll into one. Can we talk a little bit about Natural Born Killers? Can we talk a little bit about the controversy surrounding the movie? And just give me your overall thoughts on the film. I had the same feeling as you, actually. Um, I don't think it was just being a teenager that you had a hard time wrapping your mind around it. I mean, I was in film school. I was in college. I was in grad school, actually. And uh, I did not like it the first time I saw it either. And I think it... I, and, and I've since come... It's It's now one of my favorite movies actually so I'll, I'll say that right off the bat but i think that it is you know it, it it was so aggressive and confrontational and i don't think i was ready for it the first time and i found it it just i it, it you know and again this goes back to what i was saying about stone where i think it's kind of impossible to be indifferent to his movies you you, you might love them you might hate them but you're gonna feel something and natural born killers you know was i think his and again, just speaks to the greatness of Stone as a director that 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 he followed up Heaven and Earth with that. I mean, it speaks to the breadth of his worldview that the same man could make Heaven and Earth and Natural Born Killers and that they could both be such great movies because they are completely, you know, completely different. I mean, Heaven and Earth is a very humanist film um, and Natural Born Killers is not. Natural Born Killers is, you know, a just I think that was Stone just almost vomiting up everything that enraged him about American culture at the time. And I mean, all this stuff has only gotten worse now, but you know, just the tabloid culture of, of OJ and uh, the Menendez brother, not Menendez, yeah, the Menendez brothers. Right. And, and all that kind of stuff. And, 
you know, I think he kind of wanted to throw it back in everyone's faces. It was kind of like, okay, you guys, you, you like sensationalism, you know, you like violence in your entertainment. Well, let's really go for it. Like, here's real sensationalism. Here's real violence. Here's, you know, you're, you're, you're titillated by stories of, you know, sex and murder and family. Well, I'm going to give you that in the form, you know, that, that whole sequence, the, the sequence is shot like a sitcom with Rodney Dangerfield as the incestuous father. I mean, I, it's so relentlessly off-putting, but I think in it, you know, but I, but I think with a purpose. Hi dad. How is work? What work? I'm unemployed. Where the f*** have you been, huh? (laughs) Well, you look nice, Mallory. Yuck, you look like... (laughs) Thanks, Mom. Well, I'm gonna go now. I'll be back at midnight, okay? What are you wearing, a broomstick and a trash bag? Why don't you put some meat on you, huh? A few pounds lighter, you'll be missing the opium. How the hell do you think you're going, huh? I'm going to the John Lee Hooker concert with Donna. I told you that yesterday. First off, you don't tell me anything. You ask my permission. Second, you're not going out in that hula house dress. You'll end up peddling your ass, you stupid bitch. And third, you're not going out at all. You didn't mow the yard. That piece of shit lawnmower is fine! That's the way you talk in front of your mother? You stupid bitch. You watch your language. Or I'll kick the shit out of you. Like I do her. Uh, you know, I think that was a movie that was just holding up a mirror to what he saw society where he saw society going at the time and again i think you know in almost every one of these cases uh where we and where the culture went ended up validating his perspective i mean things did just get kind of coarser and you know and 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 more like natural born killers and you know and i mean the controversy at the time you know it was it was a hugely uh disliked film again i mean look i can't be critical of people because i didn't like it the first time i saw it either i needed to see it a couple of times to get what stone was was really up to and uh you know people thought it was glorifying the things that i don't think it was glorifying i mean i and i I don't think i think what what complicated it is that he wasn't overtly it, it actually isn't a movie that takes a firm moral stance the way that say born on the 4th of July does. I mean, I think natural born killers, he's, he does kind of revel in the freedom of these characters. And I think, you know, but, but, but that's not exactly the same thing as endorsing it. I mean, it's such a, it's, it's a very similar movie, I think to Kubrick's clockwork orange, which had the same, some of the same charges leveled against it. And I think, you know, again, there was this fear that like, well, people were going to imitate it and all that kind of stuff. And it gets down to this, this question of whether movies are prescriptive or descriptive. And I think it's a very, very complex issue. I mean, I think more often than not, I think great movies are responding to something that's already in the culture. I mean, I think, I don't think taxi driver created um, John Hinckley, you know, I think even though he claimed to have been influenced by it, you know, I think, I don't think that, I don't think taxi driver created, John Hinckley any more than I think natural born killers created, you know, people who went on killing sprees after it. I mean, I think, I do think it's, I do think it, it 
tends to be more those movies, you know, a great director like an Oliver Stone or a Scorsese, they kind of have these antenna that are just finely tuned to what's already out there. And I think what really bothered people about Natural Born Killers, I don't think it was so much that they were bothered, even though they said they were bothered by how they thought it could be misinterpreted and, and, and imitated and all that kind of stuff. I think what bothered people about it is that it, it, Mickey and Mallory were already here. You know, he wasn't really describing, he wasn't creating anything. He was describing something that was already out there in the air. How much of a debate did you have in, in film school over, over this film? Well, you know, it's funny because I, uh, I was in grad school at USC at the time. And what actually ended up turning me uh, toward it, you know, what made me a fan of it after my first viewing where I was kind of put off by it was I was actually taking a crime, a crime class, a crime movies class at USC just a few months after Natural Born Killers came out. I, I took this class where we watched Badlands and Godfather Part Two and Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer and all these movies. And Natural Born Killers was the most recent film that was studied. And, uh, you know, it was taken very, the teacher I had uh, took it very seriously. And we had a very sort of serious broken down analysis of it. And so in where I was at the time in grad school at USC, it was take, it was almost, I don't actually remember there being any discussion or controversy at all. You know, it was just accepted like it was a great American movie and an important American movie and a movie that we were going to study and that was probably going to be studied for as long as there were film schools to study it. Um, so it's kind of funny because in the culture, there was this whole debate raging around it. And I had kind of an initially negative reaction to it. But just a few months later, it was already kind of it had already been kind of canonized in, in, in my film school, which was kind of interesting. And again, that was when I sort of started to reconsider it and realize, no, this is a quite a great movie. If there's one thing I, I can certainly recall about that period was that was one of the few film soundtracks that I purposely went out and bought. I thought the score, or the, excuse me, I thought the, the music on, in the film was, was amazing. Yeah, well, that's a whole other thing about Stone that, you know, is he's one of the great users of music, you know, in, in his movies. Sometimes they've got great scores, like, the John Williams scores for JFK and Born on the Fourth of July and Nixon, but then he's also just a master of using source music, uh, you know, as a sort of as a sort of like psychological corollary for the characters. I mean, the, the the music in Natural Born Killers is all over the place, and it's the perfect. They're all the perfect choices for those characters and that uh, story and that point of view on uh, again on like sort of tabloid America. Moving on to 1995, we see the release of Nixon. Now, again, for the younger listeners out there, maybe they don't understand just how polarizing a figure Richard Nixon was. Richard Nixon, of course, famously resigned. I feel like we may be living in a little bit of history repeats itself, but I don't want to go down that road. Talk a little bit about Nixon. If only the... Uh, Mr. President. Huh? Sir, Congress is... Uh... Sir, Congress uh, is considering four articles of impeachment. Yeah. For what? They're very serious charges, sir. Huh? First, abuse of power. Yeah. Second, the obstruction of justice. Yeah, what else? Third, the failure to uh, cooperate with the Congress. Yeah. And uh, last, uh, bombing Cambodia, sir. They can't impeach me for bombing Cambodia. The president can bomb anybody he likes. That's true. Well, well, we'll win that one, sir, but the other three... Hey, you know, Fred, they sell tickets. It's wrong. They sir. sell tickets to an impeachment like a damn circus. <laughs> okay, so they impeach me. Well, fuck them. 
It's just a matter of uh, mathematics. Yeah, how many votes do we have in the Senate? About a dozen. A dozen? He's not gonna half of them elected. Okay, so I got the South and uh, Goldwater and his boys. I'll take my chances in the Senate. Yes, we should. This damn thing. Well then, sir, we'll uh, have to deal with the possibility of removal from office, loss of pension, possibly, possibly even prison. Yeah, well, plenty of people did their best writing in prison. Gandhi, Lenin. That's right. What I know about this country, I could rip it apart. So if they want to, they want a public humiliation. That's what they'll get. Yes, they will. I will never resign this office. Never. What the fuck have I? What's in there? Uh, the POWs and their families, the event. So, I'm supposed to be... Compassionate, grateful... Proud, sir. Proud of them. Oh, yes. Yes, Good. of course. Fire him. Who? Cox, Archibald Cox. Fire him. That's... Uh... But, sir, he works for the Attorney General. Only Richardson can fire him. May I echo my concern here, sir? Really? Then tell Richardson to fire him. Richardson won't do that, sir. He'll resign. The hell, he will. Fire him, too. If you have to go all the way down to the janitor of the Justice Department, fire that son of a bitch. He's asked for it. <laughs> Mr. President, may I just say something, sir? I think that you should welcome this subpoena. Why? Well, sir, the tapes can only prove that Dean was a liar, right? The interesting thing about the movie Nixon is that, considering what a polarizing figure the real Richard Nixon was... Uh, you know, it's actually a, it's a, it's an interesting movie in that it's neither a takedown nor a glorification of Richard Nixon. I mean, I think that of all Stone's movies, Nixon is possibly the most complex. Uh, you know, and what I find interesting about that movie is, uh, you know, that I know people on both sides of the political aisle who love that movie. And I know people on both sides of the political aisle who hate that movie. Uh, you know, I know people on the left who think that it lets Nixon off the hook and it's too easy. And I know people on the right who think that it's an attack on him. And then, again, I know people on both sides, and you know, who like I saw the movie when it came out with uh, my dad, who is uh, definitely further right on a political spectrum than I am. And both of us loved it, you know, so it's it's it. I think it kind of speaks to the the complexity of that movie that it can you know i, th I, I think it, i think any open-minded viewer is actually going to get quite a bit out of it and is probably going to find certain pers perspectives they may have on nixon challenged and certain ones um you know affirmed but it's uh you know i i, I it's it's an it's it's interesting in that for being about such a controversial figure it's actually one of the least combative of and confrontational of of stone's movies um and it was not you know it's 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 i think one of his best although I, I know i've said that a couple of them already but uh one of his best but again but but not it for whatever reason it didn't connect with the public and and even with even with the press the same way it didn't it didn't quite it didn't have the usual stone firestorm of controversy and prep media attention it kind of snuck in and out of theaters without making much of an impact which has always been mysterious to me although i think part of the problem is you know it's a three hour plus movie which i know jfk was too but jfk was a three hour plus movie that was constructed like a thriller and nixon is a three hour plus movie that is really truly um basically a character study 
interspersed with this kind of lesson in American history. And I guess people just weren't interested in that at the time, but it's a great movie. So let's talk about, you know, we, this was, we just covered the, the, like they say the, the, you know, the 10 year run, the 10 movies. Let's talk a little bit, if we could, about, you know, let's go through U-Turn, Any Given Sunday, up to Alexander. You know, let's just, let's just talk about that time period from, let's see, that would be 97 through 2004, and then we'll get into past 2004 after that. U-Turn was, you know, I think U-Turn was kind of a reboot for Stone after Nixon. You know, Nixon, again, as you said, it was the end of that 10-year, 10-film run I think that was just extraordinary. And I think he was probably a little bit exhausted and probably, I'm guessing he was a little dispirited by the failure of Nixon because I think it was one of his best movies and he probably just pointed that it you know didn't do well and so U-Turn is kind of an interesting reboot he didn't you know it's based on source material that did not originate with him it was based on a crime novel by John Ridley a fantastic uh writer who would go on to write 12 Years a Slave and he's a great director he also he directed actually a really terrific documentary that came out this year Let It Fall about the um the Rodney King verdict and its aftermath. And anyway, so U-Turn was kind of Stone. Ironically, Stone thought that U-Turn was going to be a sort of commercial endeavor. I mean, he thought he was doing a movie that was going to reestablish his commercial credentials. It was a crime movie with a lot of big stars, Sean Penn, Nick Nolte, Jennifer Lopez, although I guess she wasn't a big star at the time yet, maybe. But um, but it had a you know great, great cast. Well, uh, Claire Danes. Joaquin Phoenix and he, but he, you know, Stone thought it was going to be kind of a big commercial movie, but uh, I guess, you know, he, you know, uh, he didn't quite grasp that maybe, maybe a crime movie in about incest wasn't necessarily going to be a mass crowd pleaser. And it didn't really, (laughs) didn't really, didn't really do that well, but it's, you know, very interesting, wonderful little nasty little movie and then he went from that to doing, in 1999, he did Any Given Sunday, which is a little bit, he's kind of stoned back in epic ensemble filmmaking mode, but instead of politics, it's, you know, football. You know Shark? Ah, uh, he's woozy still. He's got bad migraines, post-concussive syndrome. Wash your arms. Don't get a hard on. Can you clear him? Christina, the guy's had three concussions in five months. There's just no way to predict what another head hit would do to this guy. But I don't think anything's going to happen. But I'm not a complete prick, you know? I do have some kind of conscience, all right? I'm not trying to screw him, Harvey. But I'd like to have him in the playoffs. Long term, what are you thinking? What am I thinking? Bottom line? We'll cut him in the offseason. The word's out. Everyone's seen him take the hits. Nobody's going to sign a $2 million concussion case. I'd be happy to have his job back at 30% of what he makes. That's if we want him back. He's got four kids, Christina. You do the math, doctor. What you help save us now, we won't forget a contract time. And and that one was, I think, pretty successful. Um, And, you know, and and was a terrific movie. Uh, He did, you know, then and then... That kind of, uh, he didn't make another fiction narrative film, I don't think, for another five years until Alexander. He did, he did doc, like some documentaries, uh, in there. Uh, but then Alexander was 2004, and that was a, a movie, that's probably his most, you know, I don't know, I wouldn't say notorious, but it, it was, it was definitely a movie that was a 
big flop uh, when it came out. And but again, I think sort of, you know, it's it's in this whole my, my whole thesis about Stone being a kind of old school Hollywood director who can do war movies and musicals and business movies and love stories and you know all just jump from genre to genre you know alexander is his big it's his his you know his spartacus style you know old historical epic and i think it's quite a great movie the day you took the siege tower attire. You were a giant. And today, how will you fight? Dexapos. By Athena, how far was it you threw your man wrestling at the last Olympic Games? Will you match it with your spear? <laughs> and Tamander, son of Menander, a great soldier to my father. I still mourn your brother, Adaios, who died so bravely at Halicarnassus. What an honored family you descend from, Tamanda. You fight for them today. The thing I love about Alexander, and I think this is one of the things that threw people about it, is it combines so many high and low pleasures of filmmaking. It's a very lofty film in certain ways, intellectually and philosophically. But then it's also kind of got it's got a lot of sex and violence and kind of, you know, melodrama. And, you know, it's very heightened in terms of some of the performances, which I love. But I think some people took I think, you know, Stone sometimes makes again, he makes people uncomfortable because the emotional material is so intense and sometimes so heightened. I think people think it's almost like they 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 don't think that Stone is in on it somehow, like they think he's made a mistake because he calibrates the emotions at such a fever pitch. But I think it's part of what makes him a great director and part of what makes Alexander a great movie. This was Stone post 9-11. And there's two films I want you to talk about back to back. We've got 2006 World Trade Center. There was a handful of movies that dealt with, you know, what happened on 9-11. And then, of course, he follows that up with a film about George W. Bush. So if you could talk about both of those films for a moment. Yeah, World Trade Center uh, is Stone, you know, interestingly, again, uh, much like how, uh, much as I said, Nixon was kind of surprising, given what a polarizing f- figure Nixon was. I think you know Stone doing World Trade Center. I think people expected something a lot more, you know, more of a firebomb. And uh, ironically, it's probably his most traditional, old-fashioned Hollywood movie. I mean, it's basically a big love story in a sense, and it's a great one. I mean, I think the finale of that, where that movie ends up going in terms of the the Nicolas Cage. Maria Bello relationship. I mean, I think I think where that goes is one of the most powerful moments in all of Stone's work. It brings tears to my eyes every time I I see it. You know, and I, but I, but I think that movie is just a model of classical, good old fashioned Hollywood storytelling. You know, and it's and it's a wonderful one. It's a great great movie. Let's go. Stay together. Lieutenant, I was down on B1. The shafts there at Buckland. There's going to be people trapping those elevators. Jeez. Just took us an hour to get up to 30 in Tower 1. I didn't want us over in 2. What happened in 2? 
I don't know. You guys be careful, okay? Yeah, stay safe. Hey, Will. Huh? Let me get that. Uh. Thanks, man. This is A1. We're in the concourse. We got gear and a head into one. A1, 800, negative that. Randy, go with me out on Barclay Street. I got a team here. We'll all go up together. 8-1. There's something going on with Tower 2. You know, W is a very interesting movie uh, because, again, I I think it was I think Stone is it. I think I you know he's I know I keep harping on this how he's wrong. I think he wrong, criticized wrongly in a lot of ways, and you know this whole idea that he's some kind of partisan. Uh, that he's simplistic, you know, nothing could be further from the truth because I think W is a film that, you know, I I really do think he tries to walk in the shoes of his characters. And I think that he probably, you know, uh, finds or found knowing what I know about stone and his view on foreign policy and, and things like that. I mean, I would suspect he finds a lot of W's, you know, real life actions and policies abhorrent. Any other brilliant ideas? How about access of weasels? Don't get cute, Carl. Serious now. I, I think it needs to be stronger. Just cut through the noise, like Reagan with the evil empire speech. Was well, it too much then to... What about access of evil? Access of evil? Evil? Yeah, I like the ring of that. That's good. Mr. President, access brings up World War II. You can't link Germany and Japan with Iraq and North Korea. No, I, I disagree, Colin. Weapons of mass destruction make these countries more dangerous. We've got to begin educating the public about the size of this war and its implications. You have an approval rating of more than 80% right now, sir. It's just astounding. Not since Roosevelt after Pearl Harbor. The American people want revenge. They liked Afghanistan. eh? They want more. Uh, Mr. President, if I may. Given your strong commitment to democracy, do you think that Iran should be lumped together with Iraq and North Korea? After all, Iran has a democratically elected president. As always, Guru, sharp. Thank you. Iran is not Iraq, and Iraq is not Iran. I know that. If we can get one democracy going in one of these places, Iran, Iraq, believe me, Reagan was right. It's going to spread to all these countries because people want freedom. With this message, we're sending strong word to reformers over there in Iran to turn on these deadbeat dead-enders, these Ayatollah cockamamies. No, Iran stays in. When you make threats, sir, you have to back them up. Now, you'd be committing us to planning out three fully operational wars with three countries. Now, I'm not saying war. I'm saying lay down the law. But the speech, as written, is taking a preemptive posture against countries none of whom have declared war on us. For 60 years now, this, <clears throat> this country has operated under a principle of containment. That's a defense, General, not an offense. 
How are you going to contain 100,000 of these lunatics running around the world with fake passports from country to country looking for nukes? Anthrax. Containment don't hold water as far as I'm concerned. The movie is it's a really funny movie because it's 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 almost it's done almost like a satire in, in play like there's almost it's almost as like a Doctor Strange love esque aspect to it. It's, it's it's the tone is kind of comic. And yet I do think he there's something he makes George W. Bush weirdly relatable in that movie. And I mean a lot of it's to do with the greatness of Josh Brolin's performance too. But but that's another movie that, you know, people on the right many of whom I think didn't probably see the movie, you know, said, oh, it's just a stone hatchet job on George W. Bush. People on the left said, oh, he went too easy on him. Uh, But I think that movie is best viewed in a way as kind of a almost like a sort of comedy, uh, you know, again, like a satire, but 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 an empathetic uh, satire, you know, which is I find very interesting um although i do think that movie i don't think he had quite i i i like that movie a lot but i don't think it's ranks quite with something like nixon or you know some of his best movies because i i don't think he had quite the same level of resources i mean I, unfortunately i think when the studio system changed um to the point where they weren't making movies like jfk and nixon and uh Heaven and Earth and things like that, anymore. Born on the Fourth of July, things like that anymore as much. I do think, as much as I like W and as much, and I really like Snowden a lot, but I think some of his later films, uh, I do think he had to str- he was straining against his resources a little bit uh, in a way that he didn't have to earlier. We really haven't touched too much on on some of the documentaries he's made, but I do remember there being a hell of a lot of controversy surrounding 2009 South of the Border, and I'm wondering if you could touch on that just for a moment. Yeah, well, South of the Border is, I think, a great movie. And, you know, there was a lot of controversy about it. The same For the same reason, there was controversy about his Putin uh, interviews that he did for Showtime this year, you know, which is essentially people thought he was giving a platform to, you know, dictators or, you know, people who were very, very dangerous leaders who were maybe antithetical to American interests. And, you know, and I think that, stone in both cases in south of the border and in the putin interviews you know i think his 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 point which i agree with would be look these people are major players on the world stage there is something to be learned from hearing what they say in their own words whether or not we agree you agree with it you know and and i don't think that it's you know i do think that stone in the case of south of the border i think he wanted to challenge the mainstream media in America's, uh, you know, narratives on the countries in South America that he was, you know, examining. But I also think that he's not necessarily people mistake all the time with Oliver Stone. They always mistake presentation for endorsement. And what I mean by that is they mistake in both his fiction and his documentary films. They assume that if he presents something on screen, he's somehow enforcing it and saying that's the way it is. And that's not the kind of filmmaker he is. I mean, he's a, he's a filmmaker of, of inquiry. He's asking, he's asking questions more than answering them. I mean, I think, and, and I think that's what the documentary work is for. And I think that the Putin interviews documentary for Showtime is just fantastic. And, and, and I have a lot of, I don't agree with everything, you know, I know like if you follow Stone on Twitter and Facebook and things like that, he'll, he'll, he has a lot of opinions about Russia and Putin and, and that I don't necessarily agree with, but I think the documentary is just great in that, even if you think Putin is lying in a lot of it, which I do, 
the way someone lies tells you something, you know, so there's nothing wrong. I, I, so, and, and I think that sort of getting away from the thrust of your question, but, um, you know, I think when he gives people like that a platform, it creates controversy because there are people who think, well, you're endorsing them. And I don't think that's necessarily true. I think any, I think he's just providing more evidence for intelligent viewers to kind of take into their brain. What's the motivation to make 2010's Wall Street sequel? Wall Street, money never sleeps. Where is the motivation for that? Is that coming stemming from the the you know financial crisis of two thousand and eight, the market crash? I mean, where where does this come from? Yeah, I I do think that's where some of it comes from. Um, I'm not. I have to admit, Wall Street, money never sleeps is not a movie. I'm really that's easily my least favorite Oliver Stone movie. Good day going, huh? I told you, good day. I'm okay. Bad day. I'm okay. Stop bugging me on my feelings. They're irrelevant. I wanted to come see you face to face and talk about these rumors, you know? Because it's getting crazy. It's out of control now. I'm hearing it from all ends. So much you don't know, Jacob. What? What about the bonus then? Why now? Because I know you. You're holding out for something better. Well, don't. Spend it. Use the money. Because one day you're going to wake up and you're going to be dead. Well, you got to get yourself together, all right? We're going to be fine. No matter how bad this thing gets, we have real equity in this company. You know that dream you got about that little energy company in California? You yes. Know, you may not get there, but you hold on to that. Because everything else is just noise. It's not just noise. There's 15,000 jobs in the line. 15,000 people here. That's not noise. Are we going under? You no, know, I never liked this damn door. Lewis, are we going under? You're asking the wrong question, Jacob. What's the right question? Who isn't? And I think there's a lot of great stuff in it. There's a lot of fun stuff in it. But I think it was a rare it was it was the only time where Stone wasn't ahead of the curve. You know, again, I, I keep you know, I kept going back with those other movies like Talk Radio and JFK and Natural Born Killers and seeing how those films kind of saw where the you know, American culture was going. Wall Street Money Never Sleeps, I feel like, was the one time I saw an Oliver Stone movie where I didn't feel like he was necessarily ahead of everybody everybody else. I felt like in fact there had been documentaries and things that had kind of covered that as well. And I felt like the movie was somewhat compromised by the whole Shia LaBeouf, uh, Carrie Mulligan storyline that just didn't really, for me, you know, just did not have the power of the Michael Douglas material or of the first movie, you know? So, and, and I don't know. I mean, I think, I think Stone, I, I don't know what his motivation was. My guess is that it probably was wanting to comment on the financial meltdown and all that. But I, I, I don't feel like that movie really as fun as some of it is, you know, it, it, it just didn't bring anything new to it the way that I felt like his, the original wall street did in its time. How do you feel about 2012 savages? You know, I love savages. I think that's, uh, and I think savages is probably his most successful attempt at kind of synthesizing his own personal and political preoccupations with a kind of mainstream, for lack of a better word, escapist studio film. Uh, and it's kind of an interesting, you know, there's, there's, it's sort of the third film in a crime trilogy, I think, you know, Natural Born Killers, U-Turn and Savages are all kind of of a piece, but Savages of the three of them is, it's the most mainstream and yet there's nothing compromised about it. I, I kind of look at it, I feel like Savages holds a place in Stone's filmography similar to Inside Man and Spike Lee's. I think in both cases you have, you know, a great, auteur 
making what, you know, kind of studio assignment movie, but just completely making it their own and, and, and merging it with their own sensibility. Uh, you know, something similar. I think Scorsese does something similar in Cape Fear. And, and I love Savages. I think it's just, I think it's a great, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's fun every now and then. Like, I, I like, I'm not a fan. I'm very kind of dispirited by the current trend in American movies where, you know, a director gets a little bit of attention and then suddenly they're doing a Marvel movie. Um, you know, like, a, like, like where you get people who are sort of quote unquote auteurs just kind of doing, doing superhero movies. And, you know, I'm not like a huge fan of that trend mostly because I think the Marvel movies and things like that, they're sort of who the director is, is often irrelevant except for a few rare cases. However, I do find it fun now and then for somebody like an Oliver Stone or Spike Lee or Scorsese or whoever to sort of dip their toe in making a movie that is, you know, a kind of mainstream crowd pleaser and seeing what that is. And it's always fascinating to me when they can pull it off and, and not, and still be true to themselves. And I think that's what Savage is. You know, if I could, if I could just, uh, shamelessly plug, uh, an episode that I did about a month and a half ago. If you haven't listened to it yet, listen to the conversation that Phil Juano and I had, uh, the episodes entitled The Business of Film 2017. And mm-hmm. he goes quite in depth about what you just mentioned about, you know, the indie, uh, auteurs taking over the big studio films. And, uh, it, it's, it's pretty impressive to hear what he has to say about it. So strong recommendation if you haven't listened to that one yet. Again, shameless plug, but I, it's my no, show. Well, I can do that. <laughs> well, he is, you know, Phil Joano is one of the smartest guys on movies that there is both the aesthetics and the business. I mean, he is, he is absolutely the, uh, he can articulate all this stuff way better than I can. So yes, I would, I agree. It's, it's, it's a great interview and I would definitely encourage uh, everybody to check it out if they haven't heard it. You know, let's talk. I remember, gosh, this one, get this, this next thing I want to talk about. To me, this one's really frustrating. This is, of course, I'm talking about Oliver Stone's Untold History of the United States, which is this massive multi-part documentary series that was on Showtime, which I binge watched in a single day. Wow. And I feel like, I felt like, getting a prescription for Prozac afterwards because I, I, I would, I was saying to my friends, you know, if 20% of what's being presented in this is true, like we're doomed, we're fucked. And, and, yeah. and I, and I, of course did a lot of research on this. And of course, you know, the, the far right media just ripped this documentary apart. And I think it is so damn compelling and so interesting and moves along at a furious pace that the, the, the entire 12 hours went by in, in a snap. And, and give me your thoughts on this particular project. I, I, agree. I agree with everything you just said. I think it's, it's, it's both, it's, it, it does, it flies by and yet is completely packed to the hilt with information. And it, and it's all, you know, this is the thing, you know, people can attack him all they want, but the thing about Stone is he does document this stuff. I mean, like there's, the, you know, there's the, he put out, a, he put out a book, a companion volume with, for Untold History of the United States that, you know, sources where this stuff comes from. And in the cases of both JFK and Nixon, he put out annotated screenplays that had, that, you know, have footnotes and source where he gets it all. So it's like, you know, Sean Hannity and whoever can go on TV and say, oh, it's all a bunch of lies and this and that. But unlike them, Stone actually does provide the documentation for he comes up with all of this. And I do think Untold History of the United States, uh, I agree with you. It's quite 
uh, terrifying and depressing in some ways. And again, you know, that was only a few years ago. That was 2012, 2013, something like that, um, that, that, that came out. But boy, it does history seem to be repeating itself. Uh, a lot of the stuff in that movie and a lot of, a lot of his theses about who really pulls the strings in this country. Uh, I feel like, you know, it, it's, we're getting, we're learning that lesson all over again. You know, as I talked to you today with just the, the Mueller investigation and, uh, and, and, and all that, it's just, it's just, it's, 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 and here's the weird thing about it though. I mildly find it comforting only in the sense that if you watch untold history of the United States, um, you do realize how often some of this stuff repeats itself and you realize that we have survived it, which I find somewhat comforting. However, I also find it depressing how we never seem to learn any of these lessons and kind of make the same, you know, make the same mistakes over and over again, let the same people control everything over and over again. Uh, so it's, you know, I find like much of Stone's work, I find it both inspiring and depressing in equal measures. I want to touch on Snowden for just a moment, but I want to ask this question. And if it's, if it's, think it's too polarizing we don't have to put it in the episode but i'm curious you know given with how you know detailed and uh just how detailed untold history was can oliver stone idly sit by with what's going on in the political landscape right now or or do we expect should we expect a a response from him at some point i suspect there will be a response um you know i think and he's you know he's an interesting guy because he if, again, you, you can kind of get a little bit of a sense if you follow him on Facebook and Twitter and things like that. He does comment on things that are, are going on. And it's often, you know, it's it's often not exactly what you would expect. I mean, I feel like lately he's become very, I don't know if cynical is the word, but, you know, he was not, he was neither. He's, I don't think he's a particular fan of Donald Trump's. However, he's also, you know, he, he's also extremely mistrustful of the American the U.S. security apparatus, so he doesn't necessarily believe what he gets told by what we get told by the FBI or the CIA. So he's 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 kind of he kind of takes a contrarian uh, stance on the whole Russian collusion thing. You know, he's not. I don't think he's a big fan of Trump. I also know he wasn't a fan at all of Hillary Clinton because of her kind of intervention, what he as he saw it, interventionist foreign policy. So I know he has strong opinions about all this stuff, and I suspect the response is coming. However. I do worry, you know, I mean, I don't, I worry a little bit that, again, Oliver Stone, I think he made his, some of his greatest films in a period, you know, Paul Schrader always says that the 70s were not, it wasn't that the filmmakers were better in the 70s, which people look to as this sort of golden age. Uh, he says the audiences were better. Yeah. And that to have, to have great films, you need great audiences. And I do worry that the kind of, kind of audience, that whole thing I was talking about JFK, how that can't exist anymore. I do worry that, like I think for Stone to want to gear up and have the necessary response to all this stuff, you know, it's, it's a, it takes a lot of work and energy to make the kinds of movies he makes. And I, I wonder if he's still driven to do it the same way that he was back in the JFK days when he knows that, you know, even for example, like a movie like Snowden, which I think is a really great movie is going to come out and kind of, be met with more of a a shrug than it would have been 20 years ago. And that's what's really frustrating about about I thought Snowden was amazing film. I thought it it, it made me angry and it made yeah. me, you know, and, and it just, you know, it just goes back to what you just said about about 
you know, the, the right audiences for this stuff. Because if, if it had come out 20 years ago, you know, the allegations that are being laid out by Edward Snowden and thus, you know, being presented in the film Snowden, you know, the, the pitchforks would, and the torches would be out, you know, people would right. be out for blood and, yeah. and nobody, just nobody seems to care. And, and, and that just speaks to just how effective a film like Snowden was for me. I, I mean, I left the theater like this, is, by the way, I was the only one in the theater and, <laughs> uh, I, I left there just, just so frustrated and, and yet felt so powerless at the same time. Yeah. And I think, again, I agree with you. I think the fact that it didn't really make more of an impact is, I mean, it was dispiriting to me as an audience member. I can't imagine if you're the filmmaker who made it and you've, you know, I, I, I just think there's the pro, I mean, I don't know. I, and, you know, the thing is like Oliver Stone has survived a lot and is, has a much stronger backbone than anyone I know. I mean, the man has taken, you know, attacks nonstop for 30 years and still keeps making movies. So hopefully nothing can really kind of break his spirit. But I, I do worry sometimes that, you know, that, 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 yeah, he's, he's going to run out of, at some point he's going to say, what's the point? I, I hope that never happens. Tell the listeners a little bit about your, your recent experience with Oliver Stone. Uh, well, I, you know, I've, I, as is probably obvious from this whole conversation, you know, he's one of my idols and one of my favorite directors. And I, I, a few months back, I was lucky enough, I got to moderate a few nights of Q and A's with him at the American Cinematheque in Los Angeles. They did a series. I mean, he jokingly kind of referred to it as, um, you know, a series of his movies that nobody went to see, uh, when they came out because it, it included Nixon, U-Churn, Heaven and Earth, uh, Salvador, which, you know, was a critical success, but wasn't a commercial one. Um, it did, and it did include, uh, natural born killers which which was the, the actually a hit so that was the one exception to the rule but you know we did several nights of uh where i got to interview him basically about his movies and uh you know he was it was terrific it was everything that you would want it to be i mean he's a very and i think i think in person he kind of bears out the claims i'm making for him as a filmmaker in that he is just very engaged and very inquisitive and he is not a guy you know people again attack him as being kind of this didactic uh propagandistic filmmaker and he's exactly the opposite he is not a guy who thinks he has all the answers it's it's anything but i mean i've i've really i've never met anybody who is as smart as him and yet as kind of still just constantly probing and, 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 you know, humble. I mean, which I think is something people don't associate with him, but I think he is actually quite a humble man in a lot of ways. And that was maybe the most surprising thing about meeting him. I've got one more question. I feel like we've kind of answered this. I mean, he's 71 years old, you know, the studio system is vastly different from how it was for him in the eighties and the early nineties. If he wants to make a film now, raising the money for it is extremely difficult. He's not going to get the big, giant Warner Brother budgets. Have we seen the best, or is the best yet to come? Well, you know, I think I do think it's going to be a lot harder for him to do the kinds of things he likes to do. Uh, you know, I know that Snowden, he tried to get that made as like a major studio movie, and nobody wanted it. So it could be, it could be, and, and again, I do think there's, you know, Stone is not somebody like John Cassavetes or Woody Allen, who can make movies on a modest... I mean, he can make movies on a modest scale. He has. But to really reach his truest 
potential. He is a he is a filmmaker of scale. You know, he he makes movies on a, of grand ambition, and they th- that need that requires a certain level of resources, which mostly you only get from the studio. So I I, I do think it's going to be tougher, but I also think you never know. You can you can never count. You can never you know you can never say that a director's career is you know in any particular. You, you can never say a director's career is done, and you can never say that it's going to go on forever. I mean. You know, I always think of, you know, Roman Polanski before The Pianist came out. I mean, you know, he had, he was a, he had become a pretty marginal director on the world stage. I mean, he was still making great movies, but they weren't movies anybody was outside of cinephiles was talking about or watching. And then he makes The, the Pianist, which is, was, you know, a hit and he won the best director Oscar and all that. So you just never know. And hopefully Stone, you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping he's still got a couple more masterpieces in him. Okay, so Jim, once again, thank you for joining the How Was This Movie. Again, I'm always in awe with the uh, the amount of insight that you can bring to the conversations. People can follow you on Twitter, Facebook, uh, your social media, your website. What's what's the information? Uh, yeah, you know, the, the best place is probably the, I've got a website that is uh, jimhempillfilms.com where I kind of keep put all my stuff I write about and all that kind of stuff on there. Or they can follow me on Twitter at Jimmy Hemphill. Okay, and your your film, The Trouble with the Truth, is currently streaming on Amazon Prime? It is on Amazon Prime, which is probably the best way to see it. It, I, it also, I just discovered, is now, um, if you don't mind sitting through a couple of commercials, you can watch it for free on YouTube. So it's on uh, it's on YouTube, and, and I've got, I just put a link on my Twitter today to that. So it's, uh, it's on YouTube, it's on Amazon Prime, uh, it's on... Uh, iTunes and all that kind of stuff, and then if you uh, if you want to shell out the eight bucks for a DVD on Amazon, you get a commentary track by me and Leah Thompson. So. Awesome, that's awesome. All right, Jim, thanks for joining us, and we're going to talk soon. All right, thank you. The How Is This Movie podcast is produced by Dana Buckler for Hidden Productions, located in Ocala, Florida. Please follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at How Is This Movie. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash How Is This Movie. Of course, you can always email the show with questions or comments at hitmpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, to become a monthly supporter of this podcast and gain instant access to bonus episodes not available anywhere else, go to patreon.com slash How Is This Movie. You'll find Find all the links to our social media in this episode's show notes.